VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, September the 29th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Greg Smith is sitting in the producer's chair this morning. You'll be speaking with Greg when you give us a call in the queue on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So as we ease into the show, so the most recent first overall pick in the NHL draft, of course, was Connor Bedard. The Connor Bedard era in the NHL began last night, playing for the Chicago Blackhawks. He had five shots on net, two assists, and a 2-1 overtime victory. Looks like he is going to be something else. So for those of you following the curling team, Guju, up at the Elite 8, well, it was the Elite 16 at the Point Bets in, uh, Invitational. Now they're in the Elite 8. They played Team Weeby later on today. And the Jays win last night, 6 nothing. Boy, clutch victory for the Jays. So Chris Bassett on the mound went seven and two thirds. He pitched 200 innings for the very first time in his illustrious career. Struck out 12 last night for a career high. So good night for him to be on point. And if you're watching the Ryder Cup like I did this morning in the bunk, you're up off to a four nothing start in the foursomes this morning. Just pounded the Americans. And if you were a Ryder Cup fan, you'll remember this one in 1991 at Kiwa Island. The U.S. beat your 14 and a half to 13 and a half. The legendary player Bernard Longer missed about a four-foot putt for part that would have clinched the 14-all tie and retained the cup for Europe. That was 1991. He had the yips, but what a career he's had. All right, so some of these, like, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to the polls, especially, like, the political horse race polls at this moment in time. Of course, they have an impact. People see them, and they digest them however they see fit. But this is a survey coming from Abacus Data. Now, they're asking about, you know, cost of living related matters and how well off you are, whether or not you're living, what they're calling paycheck to paycheck. It's a pretty clumsily worded survey. Of course, I don't put a lot of stock in it necessarily, but sitting in this chair, I hear a lot of these types of stories, so hard to argue with the outcome. So even though I don't know what paycheck to paycheck means, you know, we all use it in different ways. For some people, missing a check is the end of the road. Can't pay their bills, can't feed themselves, whatever the case may be. For others, it's probably much more of an issue about how much is on your check and what it means from payday to payday. Because you may have a pretty big lifestyle with a pretty big check, and yeah, that might result in paycheck to paycheck, but there's a vast difference between folks living with $100,000 a year with that high toity lifestyle versus someone who's really legitimately struggling paycheck to paycheck. Anyway, they come out with a number about 77% of people are in that predicament. Whatever that predicament looks like for individuals, probably different case to case. But we can, you know, extrapolate from that all of these cost of living issues. There's been different pockets of money from the feds and the province to try to help people keep their head above water. But we know the struggle is real. For some, I don't know how they make ends meet. I have no earthly idea how people do it. But that number, maybe we, we can take, break it down in like bite-sized morsels. But if you want to take on some of that cost of living stuff, we can do it, as you know full well here on the program. All right. So yesterday, there, we were told there was going to be an education-related infrastructure announcement. And nothing really surprising here. They're talking about a school for Ken Mount Terrace. Now, as I look out the window here in my studio, I'm looking right at Ken Mount Terrace. All right. So this was in the most recent budget. So this is not new monies. This is not just a new revelation. But here's the question. 
when the department or the school board, the district, would look at what regions need new schools, and of course along comes the kerfuffle with an announcement of a high school in Portugal Cove St. Phillips, which wasn't even in the conversation, versus in Paradise, which was the number one priority. So we can take that on. But inside this school for Kenmount Terrace, yes, it's a growing community. I mean, I can see the homes. It's a pretty busy spot up there. But what jumps off the page is that they're not even sure how many students they're trying to accommodate in this $50 million school out of the $127 million set aside for education infrastructure. And yes, the student population is growing. This year, around 64,000 students. But we're not even sure how many students are going to try to accommodate in this school in Kenmount Terrace. I don't begrudge them a school. It'd be great to have a nice neighborhood school. In addition to that, we don't even know what grades they're going to accommodate. So... You know, when we look at priorities and evaluating population growth and the numbers of students in the K-12 system living in one community or one neighborhood or another, you think that would be the driving force purely that about how many students, what grades, that's pretty important stuff kind of left out of the uh, pocket of information that we got yesterday. So anyway, it'd be nice to know a little bit more about justification issues. And I think still the looming justification issue is no high school for Paradise, but yes, one for Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. Not sure about that. You want to take it on? And again, you know me. I have a soft spot for the Cove. My mother's family's from the Cove. I spent a lot of summers in the Cove. So it's not about picking winners and losers. It's about using the data that is available. Anyway, take it on. Not surprisingly, a ton of emails overnight about the issue we raised yesterday regarding the fact that the province has now announced that there will be no more public exams in the future. We haven't done them for years. There's some pandemic-related matters, apparently. So I don't know if it's good or bad. I'm not an educator. I don't work in the curriculum, the creation of the curriculum and how we assess where students are. But apparently, people who are educators, whether it be working uh, in academia, like uh, an associate professor at Memorial University, who's saying this is a good thing. There's still plenty of ways to assess where a student is throughout the course of the year without the so-called pressure cooker that is the public exam at the end of the year, maybe making up some 40 to possibly 50% of your overall mark. So I get it. Some people absolutely do crack under pressure, can 100% have a lot of the information right there to deliver an A grade on an exam, but when the pressure gets to them or they're not very good at taking tests, all right, but lots of support saying that this is the right move. Maybe it's the right move because your child is one of those children that doesn't do well with tests, doesn't do well with the exams and the pressure that comes with it, but you want to bring it forward. We can do exactly that. Okay. Back to the healthcare worker poaching story. So the province of Saskatchewan is being aggressive. Like, we've been aggressive as a province, but internationally speaking. Now, even when we sent a team to Ireland to try to recruit doctors, there were stories in the Irish press talking about the ethics of doing exactly that. Their healthcare system is short workers as well. Their healthcare system is also in some sort of crisis, as is ours. So we were willing and happy enough, even though that was the pushback coming about the ethics of that type of recruitment. And look, I'm like you. We need the healthcare professionals. But there are questions about how and where we get them. And then, you know, we went to India for nurses. A couple of items that jump out of, off the page to me there, as I've mentioned before, is we don't even know what the goals were, as so whether or not we can assess that this was a success or we need to tweak our approach or what have you, but domestically. So Saskatchewan, going to five different provinces to aggressively recruit, lure healthcare professionals. They're in Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, PEI, and this province. So as, uh, pardon me, Minister Osborne points out, there's a difference between 
passive recruitment and posting of ads and posting of incentives and those types of things versus face-to-face -face in the schools where we're training them and we're subsidizing their education. So, but if we're told that that crosses the line, then it's kind of hard to understand how the pushback is, well, we're going to play your game. We're going to go to Regina and, and Prince Albert or Saskatoon or whatever the case may be to try to do exactly what Saskatchewan's doing here. It's kind of hard to have it both ways on this one. It's either ethical, appropriate, or it's not. So how this gets settled, and I'm going to keep asking this question because nobody's got an answer. And yes, the provinces will be left up to their own desires to do as they see fit, but at some point... And the nationals conversation, whether it be first ministers and or health ministers across the country, sit down, try to work out a strategy that doesn't pit one province against another. Because eventually, we're all going to run out of money. Nothing's going to be better. Positive health care outcomes will not increase. Shortages will not be addressed. Work-life balance will still be in tatters. And so there's got to be some national guidance here. I don't want the feds to tell me or this province exactly what we must do in health care. But... If we're going to see this bidding war escalate, and it's inevitable, then something else has to be done there. But your thoughts on whether or not the province should be doing what Saskatchewan is doing? Again, we would all like to see a full staffing complement across the entirety of healthcare professionals, but that one is an interesting conversation to have if you are interested in exactly that. So we have now for the first time some information from the Serious Incident Response Team about the RNC-involved shooting death on Elizabeth Avenue. So it was a long time before we even knew who the person was who was shot dead. So now through sworn affidavits, they are saying that the, they were called to the income support office, responded, and there was a man there who was wanted by a warrant. Apparently he took a hammer out of his bag, eventually threw it at the officer, striking and hurting them, and then as per sworn affidavits, which is all we can refer to at this point, the victim went for a knife that was in his waistband, apparently, and consequently there was a shot discharged, hit him in the torso, he died later at hospital. So the creation of this serious incident response team, I think, has been important. We were fully reliant on these types of certs from elsewhere in the country. And, you know, Mike King, top-quality guy, and I think they're probably doing a very, very good job with the professional investigators they have on board. So that's what we know at this moment in time. No further information as to what that means at the end of the day, so to speak. But that one's out there. But on that front, you know, whether it be really troubled neighborhoods or what have you, we all see the stories, right? There's an uptick in some serious crime around here, and that's not to sensationalize it or to make anyone afraid. But the numbers are what the numbers are. So we see that one of the stabbing deaths in the, uh, in the city here, Lorraine Obed, is going to plead guilty. That leaves, I think, about 18 or 19 active homicide cases in front of the courts, one including a 14-year-old child. It's the prevalence of guns and the problems with drugs. I mean, honest to God, we can all see it as plain as the nose on your face. And one place where I think we're going to have to see some amendments to the criminal justice system and or the criminal code of Canada is to try to deal with these 3D ghost guns that you can simply just print at home. Never registered, no serial numbers, can never track them, know where they are, who's got them. So I think there's got to be a change there. What do you think? All right, so... We've been talking about the fact that the Premier went to Alberta. Now, there's a difference between trying to recruit skilled tradespeople, I think, versus healthcare professionals, but that was something that happened. And, you know, we're referencing some of the projects that may come on stream. 
whether or not Equinor actually goes out and produces a Beta Nord. Still lots of shoes to drop on that one. And yes, it's the number of companies moving forward in the potential for wind to hydrogen to ammonia, which comes with an enormous number of jobs required. And we all know the four companies, right? So ABO had partnered with Briar Fuels out of Come By Chance, Everwind on the Buren Peninsula, Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation, and of course, World Energy GH2. October the 11th, the last day for public input on these proposals, is coming very, very quickly. And they've got 18 months to deal with their environmental assessments and crown land applications. But in the world of jobs, if we're talking about lifespan between 35 and 40 years, and I don't know which of these projects will get off the ground, but inevitably, at least one will, I think. Certainly the province is talking like they will, so we'll see. So 35 to 40 years, they're estimating, if all four happened, $206.2 billion in gross domestic product, $11.7 billion in revenue for the province, and here's the tricky one, jobs. They say peak employment will be 11694 it's a very specific number, and an estimated uh, payroll of $66.3 billion. To help us understand exactly what the landscape looks like for skilled tradespeople, the numbers working, the numbers looking, and how those jobs can be satisfied if indeed they come to pass, we're going to have a conversation shortly here with the Executive Director of Trades and L. Darren King about exactly that and what he knows about the Premier's trip to AB. All right, a couple of quickies before we do get to that call. So yesterday at the International Energy Agency conference, lots of warnings being continued, and rightfully so, about China's dominance and China's grip on the critical minerals issue in the, in the world. They produce very little, but they import a lot, and they manufacture a lot of product, we buy it back. There is absolutely an opportunity for a global supply chain to be captured right here in this country. We've got all the critical minerals required. We're the only democratic country on the face of the earth with all the minerals required to create, for instance, batteries, electric vehicle batteries or laptop support, cell phones, and all the rest. It's going to be in demand. We all see it. It's very clear. But on that front, I don't know if it's the right play or the wrong play, but when we know that in the United States, because of the Inflation Reduction Act, there was huge incentives for companies to set up shop there with all kinds of tax subsidies, all types of breaks and rebates coming from the federal government. Our country responded in kind-ish. There were some 70 cities around the world that were all trying to get a piece of Northvolt. Northvolt is a, a ba battery manufacturing. They're a giant in the industry. They actually have a relationship with Valet, which is part of the conversation as well. But it's how you create that global supply chain. So now, just outside of Montreal, there is going to be a 170-hectare covered space facility producing these batteries. First phase of the project, $7 billion. But here's where it gets tricky for folks. While the government is looking to slash in certain departments, and we'll get to the defense budget issue now in a second, is $7 billion in total investment, create up to 30,000 jobs, manufacturing capacity of up to 30 gigawatts. The contribution to the economy, they say, is in the neighborhood of $1.6 billion. But where the money comes from initially is the conversation that we should engage in. Between Quebec and Ottawa, they're going to pony up $2.7 billion for the initial portion of the first phase. So in addition to that, there's going to be another, I think, $1.5 billion from the province as they avail of some production incentives. So it's a similar story to what we heard in Ontario. You know, lots of jobs on the line, but lots of government money on the line. And now some of the money is directly associated with hitting production targets, but is this a, the right play? Countries everywhere, including the United States, are our largest trading partner. We share the longest unarmed border in the world with the Americans. They're being super aggressive trying to bring these types of investments to their country. Are we on the right track there? Because if we're just going to follow and we don't 
find ourselves as part of the global supply chain captured domestically, I think we're going to miss a pretty valuable boat. But if you want to tackle that one, we can do it. And speaking of budgets, the federal liberals looking at slashing a b almost a billion dollars out of the defense budget. So the defense budget this year is supposed to be somewhere in the neighborhood of, I think it's $26.5 billion. You know, for anyone to say that it's going to have minimal impact, almost a billion dollars out of 26.5 is obviously going to be a problem. Asked the Chief of Defense Staff, General Wayne Iyer, he said there's no way that this won't have a negative impact on our readiness. If we're going to deploy our military anywhere in the world for any reason, they've got to have exactly what they need to be safe. So while Anita Anand at the Treasury Board is asking various departments to cut some $16 billion, and this, remind, uh, remember, this is only a few weeks after Canada committed in full to NATO to hit 2% of, uh, of the budget, or GDP, uh, towards military readiness, and now we're slashing a billion dollars. Not so sure that's the area that Canadians are going to be much interested in. But hey, if we're slashing, it's got to come somewhere. All right, so today there's going to be an apology from Premier Fury to survivors of the residential schools. And there was a really good synopsis offered by Linda Swain uh, that they ran in the VOC Morning Show. If there's any lull in the action today, we'll play it, I think, because it was really did capture the essence of the problems. The controversies and the pushback and the commentary lobbed between the Nunatsiyavut government and the Nunatukavut uh, Community Council about who should be recognized first and all the rest. I don't pretend to have a real firm understanding of this, but I listened to Linda's piece. It was really quite solid. If there's time today, maybe we'll roll it so you can be better informed, or at least I can. And, of course, tomorrow is the Day of Truth and Reconciliation, if you'd like to bring forward any issues surrounding that day. And the path towards reconciliation, we're happy to take that call. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show here on this Come Out with a Friday edition. Kicking it off will be the Executive Director at Trades and L. That's Darren King. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the Executive Director at Trades and L. That's Darren King. Good morning, Darren. You're on the air. Hey, Petty. How are you this morning? Best kind. How about you? I'm great, thanks. I'm great. I enjoyed your preamble. Lots of exciting issues. There's a lot on the go. There always is. Uh, Darren, what do you know about the Premier's trip to Alberta uh, to try to recruit skilled tradespeople in particular? Were you part of that loop? Or what do you know about it? Yeah, yeah, well, sure. We're uh, happy to talk about it. We were part of it. Uh, it, it, it was a group uh, from the province of employers, uh, developers, a uh, uh, number of industry associations. Uh, spent uh, a day or so in Fort McMurray, um, a number of different agendas, of course. We, we did some touring of a, of a couple of local facilities and whatnot, but the, the primary event and objective was the uh, career fair. Um, so each of us set up and uh, open to the public, had an opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, what we offer, what the future holds in the province. So from, you know, from our perspective, obviously, we we talked about skilled trades opportunities and, <clears throat> and highlighted the fact that uh, there's a projected shortage over the next five years of uh, several thousand skilled trades workers in the province based on, of course, retirements that we're seeing and, and the trend of new entrants into the apprenticeship program. Uh, so it's an opportunity for us to talk about the trades that we represent, uh, the opportunities in front of us uh, with uh, various projects that we're currently doing, and, of course, the, the wind, hydrogen, and some of the new emerging sectors that we're seeing. I mean, currently, what's the landscape for skilled tradespeople? There must be a job out there for all hands. 
Yeah, we're we're tight. Uh, I mean, you know, it depends on the trade, Patty. Like I could say to you, we're 96, 97% employed in some areas, in many areas, but there, there are other trades where uh, today uh, it's a little different than that. They're, you know, they're a little lower. I talked to the sheet metal manager yesterday, for example, and and they have uh, they have some people ready to go to work today and, you know it's because of the nature of our business we you know we we go in and do projects as you know and, and not just resource projects but you know we're involved for example in the mental health facility and some of the schools and and other provincial buildings being built so it's not a case that you get a job as a sheet metal worker or electrician and you go in and work you know permanently you go in your job scope of work could be six months or eight months and you come off the job so you know there's times that we're 100 percent employed in many unions for a period of time and then you know the next day there could be a layoff of 50 or 60 in that particular trade and then they're available to go to work on another school or provincial building or to go to labrador on a maintenance project so our numbers really fluctuate day to day but you know i think it's fair to say we're well above 90 percent employed and uh, and as of our last meeting I've been advised all of our managers that by all of our managers that we're recruiting in every single trade right now. All of our unions are open for business. Uh, we're looking for members. You know, we, we see an aging workforce and uh, not not as many new apprentices coming in as we like to see. So we're open for business and we're, and we're looking to recruit new people and uh, any stalled apprentices who are out there. We're looking to get them back on track and get them engaged with us. I have a, a father of a daughter with a uh, she's an apprentice of one trade or another. He didn't itemize which trade it was, and you know he's hearing these stories of the premier going down. Berlin. Here, here's all these big projects that are ongoing or in the offing, and his daughter can't get a job. How common is it for apprentices to be kind of left in a lurch here? Because there's a long way between your red seal and your apprenticeship. So how common is that, and what can be done to help these apprentices along? Well, you know what? It's very common, uh, unfortunately. And there's a couple of things that uh, that we're engaged in. Your timing is kind of pretty good, actually. So we just, first of all, we, you know, we've got to focus on Indigenous apprentices, as you know. We just opened our third office, uh, one in Labrador, one on the West Coast, one here in town. And, you know, we're really trying to get those stalled apprentices from the Indigenous uh, population back on track and moving. Uh, just literally just finished a discussion with Econex about 20 minutes ago, and, and one of the projects we're working on now is, is focusing on stalled apprentices. And, you know, what, what we really got to do is, is those, those apprentices who have completed their programs and don't have work, we, we need to get them in the system. And, you know, from my perspective, representing unionized employers, uh, you know, what we need to do is, is to get them into one of the unions. There's grants available right now from the federal government for employers who will take apprentices on. Uh, significant grants, anywhere from five, I think, to ten thousand dollars available per apprentice. Uh, and so I think that's the first step: is those who have the training done had to get back in the system, and they had to get an opportunity to start accumulating their hours so they can start moving forward towards their red seal and their journey for status. Uh, but I, you know, on that particular case, Patty, without knowing any detail, like, you know, I certainly encourage uh, them to call our office here. I mean, you know, we we don't run the day-to-day affairs of our unions and the membership, but we do facilitate uh, trying to solve problems for people and putting in touch with the right people so i'd encourage them to reach out to us <clears throat> excuse me you know it's a good problem to have i suppose when there might be lots of jobs now i don't have a crystal ball but it looks very likely that at least some wind projects will get off the ground here i know they're negotiating on near offshore uh, wind as well for the regulatory regime royalties what have you but if you just look at the numbers
numbers. Even if all four of these wind projects happen, and again, I don't know, but we're talking about peak employment, 11,694. We've got uh, numbers coming from uh, CMHC about the need to build 60,000 homes or units in this province over the course of the next six years. That's 10,000 a year when a banner year in housing starts is 2,500. Then you talk about Equinor possibility out of Bader Nord. Add in some of the other infrastructure projects. Add in Bull Arm. Add in everything else that's currently ongoing. Again, possibly a good problem to have, but possibly also an insurmountable problem to have. How do we approach this? Well, first of all, I, I, I would say that it's not insurmountable for sure. Um, you know, many people may not be aware of this. When I started here with this organization, well, it's over eight years ago now, we peaked out in this province that we had 18,000 people working with, with Trades and L between uh, Valet and Long Harbor, uh, the Hebron Project, and Muskrat Falls. There, were, there was a period of time, not a long period, Excuse me, but it was a period of time where those three projects kind of peaked simultaneously. So we we were employing around 18,000 people at one point in time. Uh, my point being, it, it, first of all, it's not insurmountable. Secondly, uh, the other piece that's important here is that when I say we're 90 or 90 odd percent employed, that's not all employed in the province. You know, probably half of those or so are out of the province. They're commuting to Fort McMurray. Okay. They're commu- commuting to the oil sands. They're commuting to Kitimat, the LNG project in BC. And, you know, the challenge right now, the challenge is most of those people are not coming home if, if we have four weeks work for them over on the core science building or if we have six weeks work on Paradise Elementary School doing a particular job. But they will come back if there's a construction project for a year or a year and a half and seeing that there's another project coming on the other side of that. So, you know, I don't think the, the issue is as insurmountable as some might think. We, we have the resource from the province working outside the province, if we can just attract some new entrants and, and address, you know, from the from the indigenous trades and from the, from uh, women apprentices and the stalled apprentices, I think we'll be in decent shape. We just got to kind of get our ducks in a row right now. You know, one thing that will be part and parcel with this, because if they can all raise the capital in these wind, hydrogen, ammonia plays, then they might happen very similar time frames or even concurrently. Have you heard anything about trying to stagger some of these things? Because the province does have some control about timelines for green lights or final approvals what have you because that may indeed be a problem that I'll, I'll stop using the word insurmountable but it may be extremely chaotic if they all try to get going at the same time because it's a private sector they want to get you know shovels in the ground and uh, product to market first or at least not second or not fourth so any idea how this stagger potential conversation might sound yeah you're absolutely right on that uh, you know i i've had that discussion with a number of people obviously very biased uh, but i think from a trades perspective and likely from you know local contractor perspective and the government's perspective if, if these four or five projects five i guess because pattern has announced they're moving forward as well yeah. in the wind hydrogen if those five were staggered even six months uh, it, it will make a, a huge difference to the economy and to the employment opportunities and opportunities for local contractors um, you know, I, I don't think that necessarily there's a formal discussion ongoing. If there is, I'm certainly not privy to it. Uh, but my experience, you know, and, and based on some interactions I'm having with some of these companies now, I, I suspect that some staggering is going to happen just by natural causes. I don't think it's going to have to be 
uh, forced or regulated by government. I, I think you're going to see some proponents come out much quicker than others, and some are indicating their timelines are more like two, two and a half years out. So you might see some staggering anyway, but in an ideal situation, I have to say you're 100% for the province and for the opportunities available. If we could stagger these projects so that we're not doing five over three years, but we're doing five over perhaps 10 or 12 years, we'd be in a much better position economically. And even for the companies, you know, if they have certain trades required early on and then there's a lull in that particular trade and they come back to finish a job, you know, it's like when you do a renovation on your house. If you don't have all the subs locked down, you know, a six-week project can very quickly become a 16-week project. Uh, last one, you mentioned Kedimat and the uh, LNG facility out in BC. There's all kinds of talk about, you know, unleashing the force of gas reserves in this country. Can you Do you have any idea what the status of that project is? The, the Kedimat project? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, I mean, that project, it's more than 50% complete. We have uh, we have a lot of people out there. There's enough going from the island. There's actually a weekly direct flight out of St. John's to BC, um, right for that project. Uh, it's it's huge. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of work going on out there. We've got a lot of people out there. Uh, I'm not sure their timelines. I think they're probably within a couple of years of completion or so. That you know, there's still a fair amount to do. But the, the project is is well along. And you know, for us, obviously, we're hopeful that. That becomes a bit of a flagship, hopefully, to uh, to nudge governments along to get the LNG proposal approved here uh, for Grassy Point at Ron Arnold's Cove. Because, as you know, we've got a pretty huge project here in, in the offing that we're trying to move forward. Yeah, there's trillions of cubic feet of natural gas off our shores. Uh, you know, I don't know what the business model looks like to get at it. I think it's somewhere around 5 or 6 bucks per MMBTU to make it viable, whether you pipeline it or you compress it or liquefy it offshore. Hard to say, hard to say what happens there. Darren, always appreciate the time. Thanks. Yes, thanks for the opportunity, Patty. Have a great week. You too. Have a great weekend. Weekend. I you too. Say. Thanks, Darren. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Darren King, Executive Director at Trades NL. Okay, so the potential there for jobs is obviously enormous. Let's take a break. When we come back, there was a report uh, delivered to the House of Assembly yesterday, then released to the media from the province's Auditor General, Denise Hanrahan. And this is a look at the Office of the High Sheriff. I think Denise is in the queue. Is she day? Uh, Greg? Denise Hanrahan, right after this. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Join us on line number three is the province's Auditor General. That's Denise Hanrahan. Good morning, Denise. You're on the air. Good morning. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of your report about operations, whether they had related staff competencies in place, just staffing in general, is that something that you looked at? Because I had a message this morning from a fellow who says, there's only one full-time sheriff in Wabush, and there's ads out for 10 others like in Buren, Grand Bank, and places like that. Did you look at staffing overall, or was it simply about oversight and monitoring of the funds? So we focused our audit in specifically into two branches of the Office of the High Sheriff. So we didn't do the entire office. We focused on the Judgment Enforcement and Accounts branch, which really was focused on that administrative financial responsibilities. And we looked uh, specifically at the court security branch, which had uh, the cards and the, the camera system. So, uh, and even within those, um, we look at who is doing the work. We don't assess policy decisions about where resources are applied, we look at how the decisions are made afterwards, so how things are implemented. Okay, I appreciate that. So let's start with, you know, you talk about staff competencies. There hasn't been a financial operations manager since 2017. As a result, four years of financials are missing. What do we know about that time frame? 
So we know that in early 2017, uh, we understand as part of a larger government initiative, this position was uh, removed from their operation at the time in early 2017. They did reassign some duties to different people and different things like that. But we also know that the following fiscal year end, which was March of 2018, no financial statement was prepared. And so this continued for several years. And in January of 2022, I actually put it in my annual report that these financial statements were outstanding, that my office was concerned about undetected error or fraud. And then a couple of months later, the department did create a temporary manager, and it's been there ever since. When we don't have formalized processes of, for oversight between the Department of Justice and Public Safety and the Office of the High Sheriff, it, it leaves room or heightened risk for fraud and the like. Now, you didn't find any cases of that criminal activity, but describe what you found to be the relationship between the department and the office. Ministers have lots of entities and branches and divisions, and we appreciate they're extremely busy, and that's why they have a team of executives that help them run their operations. These are legislative mandates, the Office of the High Sheriff is. So those entities are expected to operate appropriately, but when things start to show issues, uh, we would expect the department, as the one ultimately responsible per the legislation, to take corrective action as needed. In this particular case, uh, there were many indicators of issues. Uh, number one for us, of course, is the inability to produce a financial statement that we could ultimately look at and audit. So we were that independent assessment that could go in to give comfort that we had looked at the controls in the operation, we had looked at the bank accounts, those types of things. Um, and we found um, over the span uh, since 2017 uh, those issues with those financial statements not being prepared, but we also found other indicators of issues of bank reconciliations not being required. We found drop balances where salaries obviously couldn't get spent because there was significant turnover and retention issues. Um, and we didn't see very serious action to tackle the issue. Um, it's the reason why we put it in our report in January of 22 to draw some attention to it. Um, and there's no doubt that the department did uh, pursue additional things. However, as of today, um, I'm still out four years of financial statements. The minister responsible, John Hogan, says he accepts recommendations, and we'll get into those in a moment, but here's a, a comment, uh, a quote coming from the minister. We do feel there's a high level of oversight between the Department of Justice and with the office. Our assistant deputy minister meets with the high sheriff on a monthly basis to review what's happening down there, so we're always in constant contact about any issues that arise and how they will be dealt with in a timely manner. Your reaction? We found that communication was very informal, uh, wasn't documented, um, and from our assessment through this audit, we would not have considered it effective. Having missing financial statements, having significant staff vacancies, having concerns um, coming specifically from the high sheriff, not being able to satisfy your legislative requirement. Um, there may have been some communication, but in our assessment, we wouldn't have considered it effective. So uh, help elaborate on what you're recommending so far as a formalized oversight. What does that look like? So for us, that would be a review of their legislation. There were, you know, some issues with vagueness in the legislation. If the legislation had required, for example, a statutory deadline for financial statements to be audited, like many organizations within the public service are, then I think we wouldn't be several years later without uh, a statement done. So there is some language that could certainly be improved uh, in 
in that. Um, and that helps with oversight because it, it, it forces a deadline. It forces somebody to uh, perform a duty. We would also expect that there would be more formalized and more documented um, communication between both offices, um, be it in the form of reports or minutes of meetings. Um, and certainly, you know, we would have expected that when issues are highlighted either by the high sheriff or indicative from a gap in their work. So let's say bank reconciliations, balances that continue to rise, payees they're not able to find, uh, could be, uh, you know, many different issues that you would see then corrective action that would happen as a result. Is there a process being recommended to revisit the four years of missing financials? Is that going to happen or is that long in the rearview mirror? They have to occur. Um, they will remain offside with their legislation if they don't occur. Um, my understanding uh, is that they need to first prepare the records and draft the financial statements for us to initiate our audit. Um, we have prioritized these audits when we receive them, and we were happy uh, that we were able to get two done this year. Unfortunately, like most financial and accounting things, you need to do things in an order. Um, so you, you know, they do have a lot of catch-up to do, but it's completely doable, and uh, I was uh, happy to hear the minister say that he expects to do that uh, in short order. Fair enough. Is there any repercussions for operating outside the boundaries of legislation in this case, or is it simply the, the need to catch up? Um, so for, you know... I'm not a legislative expert, so I'm not sure how okay. to, you know, what what to say with respect of of not following legislation. This legislation, which is over 30 years old, just says that they have to do an audit. It doesn't have a time frame on it. Some legislation will say September 30th. I will tell you, this has been a very busy week in my office because a lot of entities now need to get their signed audit opinions and their financial statements back to satisfy their legislation. And I have to be honest, that's always been a priority of the public service with my office, and we work well together with that. This is an, a good example, though, where when something goes off the rails, it can it keeps to growing because it's very challenging to get caught up doing the same thing you always did. It suddenly, it needs more effort, it needs more resources, it needs more attention. And we have found in the two years that we recently did lots of management letter points uh, and things that came up that, you know, process improvements. At the end of the day, these financial statements are meant to prevent and detect error, fraud. They're meant to protect the public service. They do deal with almost uh, over our scope period, 13,000 transactions. There's four or five million dollars a year that flow through these trust accounts and revenue accounts um, and so you know while we don't extrapolate our findings there's many of these type of entities all across the public service so that's where our concern comes from. Uh, I don't mean to catch you off guard but you know not directly related to a story coming from the province of Alberta about E. coli outbreak and you know it harmed dozens of children so you did a performance audit this year about food premises inspection and licensing program audit report. Is there any update on any recommendations or any changes that are coming on that front because people complain about regula regulations and regulatory bodies and timelines to get things off the ground whether it be a housing start or a restaurant open anything you can tell us about that inspection uh, performance audit so the audit that we released uh, back in May on the food premises inspection and licensing uh, did have five specific recommendations between the departments of health and community services as well as digital gov
government and service NL. Our normal process is that we release our reports. Um, the Public Accounts Committee then often uh, assesses our reports and may choose to uh, follow up uh, looking for action plans. But we normally give um, our entities at least two years before we start talking to them about they did. So I suspect those questions probably uh, to get something timely, you would need to talk to the departments. Appreciate the time this morning, Denise. Thank no you. No problem. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Provinces Auditor General, Denise Hanrahan. Just a little bit of lighthearted before we get to the break and come back to your call. You know, I heard Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey on the program this morning, the BOC Morning Show, playing a tune leading into the 8 o'clock news, chose a little lover boy. Last night, there was 13 bands. Bit of nostalgia for me. 13 rock bands from the 70s and 80s were... Uh, Involved, or, uh, what's the proper word here? Inducted into the Walk of Fame, which is in the theater district right there in the city of Toronto. Here's some blasts from the past. Glass Tiger, Loverboy, Trooper, Chilliwack. What else we got here? April Wine, Platinum Blonde, The Parachute Club, Lighthouse, Lee Aaron, Michael Pagliaro. We should have a, something like that in this province. We should have a music hall of fame. We absolutely should. You want to make recommendations as to who belongs in that lauded hall? If there ever was one, we can do it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, today's a good day to get on the show. 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Doing sir? okay. Thanks. How about you? Uh, not too bad, but I got a couple of concerns about the health care that I have spoke to the minister about and seemed like... I was just put off, so uh, my thought was, I I think I'm almost a professional patient. The last six years, I've uh, I'm recovering from leukemia. So first off, I want to thank the people in Newfoundland and Labrador for keeping me alive. The second part, I mentioned to these. Uh, to the minister and his associates uh, about a patient advocate. And he said, yeah, we can't do that. it got to be brought up in the House of Assembly and so forth and so on. And I said to him, uh, well, I believe a patient that stayed in the health science for the last two and a half years, probably three years out of the last six years, and visited a lot of uh, departments there from uh, respiratoryology to hematology to ATP to Fornorday, so forth and so on, emergency. And a couple of concerns I had brought up to him that they didn't think was valid, I guess. I don't know. Uh, one for a couple of examples I'll give you, and then I'll give you my email address. And anybody wants to contact me, I may be able to help them in some way, shape, or form. Uh, one example, when I was rushed to the hospital one time during COVID, I had a high fever and such. And I ended up in, I was supposed to be in a private room. They never had one available. So they put me in a four-roomer. And a day and a half I was in there, I'm lying in my bed, not sure what's going to happen to me. Four people's families were told that the people in the bed next to me were going to die. So... I thought to myself, that's not very good for the families. And I was concerned, is that going to happen to my family? In a room with three other people that are strangers, my family stood up and that's going to be told. So I asked the minister, can you fix that? 
Another example I asked him, I said, about all these people in the on the Eastern Health Boards, I said, I never see one of them walk through the departments I was in for my few years. Uh, walk through and just see what is it like on the front line. And he said, well, I don't know what to tell you. And then I brought up to him another, I can give you 50 issues, but I won't. Another issue I brought up is when you go in to register. Now, the governor talking about always worried about personal information. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Patty, and I don't mean to own your or your platform here this morning. No, that's okay. What's the What's the question for me? I'm sorry. Uh, when you go in to register, Patty, mm-hmm. you stand up and out loud tell them about your own personal information, your wife's family personal information, your next contact's personal information, and where you're going to in the hospital. Now, there's many times I registered, there's eight and ten other people there. And I have a concern with that. You know what I mean? So do I. It just seems like such a strange thing. We're told repeatedly to protect our private information, whether it be medical or otherwise, and then you go to a very public setting, and for all to hear, they're listening to your public or your private information being shared with the triage nurse or the person working at admissions. Yeah, I understand your thoughts there entirely, completely. Uh, and it's an easy fix, and it don't cost no money to fix it. So... In my thought, those two examples I give you, and I can give you many more, but first I'd like to thank the people who work in the health science, because ATP, bone marrow transplant clinic, uh, the respiratoriologists, the nurses on 4 North Day, outstanding. So I'm not only here to call and say the things that I think could be fixed at no cost, but there's some great things going on at the health science. And I feel I would personally, or someone like me, could certainly help Eastern Health by someone speaking from a patient's behalf. And no one seems to think it's a good idea except for me. So you're suggesting, just so I'm clear, Tom, is that you're thinking that uh, a helpful position would be a patient's advocate very similar to the child and youth advocate is that what you mean that's a hundred percent correct sir and when you hang around with the healthcare for the last six years now i was diagnosed with leukemia in may of 17 had a year in the hospital a little bit about myself and then that didn't work so i ended up going to halifax bone marrow transplants came back got sick in 21, I went in hospital in November and got out in January. They thought I was gone. So the nurses and the cleaning staff, outstanding, every one of them up there. But I see things on that floor that could be fixed. You know, when you see a, a nurse come into your room to take your vitals, and he doesn't have a vital tower, and he's gone for 25 minutes to find one. That particular nurse, after a period of time, left the hospital and went basically in a different perspective working nine to five. And he told me straight up, all these little things, 
just gets to you after a while when you can't get a day off for your children's birthday and so forth and so on. And like I said to the minister, all these bean counters, I call them, and I don't mean to disrespect any of them, but they don't have the perspective I have. And I think there should be something out there for the people that are coming to the health science from all over Newfoundland and Labrador, and in a lot of cases, very sick and very nervous. And I figure if they called me or emailed me, I can give them some easy ways that they can transition into the healthcare. Hope for the best that they come out better than they went in. Well, that's always the hope, isn't it? You know, it's not a bad idea. We have certain things like patient navigators, which are going to try to do what you're suggesting you'll be able to do to help people with understanding what they're getting themselves into and some tips to make it easier or more seamless. But the thought of a patient advocate, look, we basically get better knowledge talking from people who are so-called on the front lines. If you need to know the problems facing nurses, it's probably not the minister, it's probably a nurse. But issues facing teachers, ask a teacher. Issues facing patients, ask a patient. So I get where you're coming from, Tom. And hopefully, if anyone, you know, is worried about what's coming up, whether it be on behalf of themselves or a loved one, if you want to share your email address, for instance, you go right ahead and see if you can help someone out. Well, my, my email is close to my name. It's M-U-R-P-H-S-N-L.Rogers.com. That's a pretty convenient email address for uh, Tom Murphy. Murphy at uh, NL.Rogers.com. Good one. Okay. Now, not Murphy, Patty, Murph. Oh, just Murph. Well, yes, that's what they, they called me in hockey, and that's what they called my son in hockey. And I like to torment you up to the twin rings of scattered time. Fair enough. You're not alone. <laughs> anyway, Patty, I hate to take any more of your time. I don't know if I'm not listening to your show right now because I find it too difficult to do both. To do both. And other than that, thank you for my time. And I hope other people heard this and say, boy, that's not a bad idea. And maybe the minister or the premier say, by the God. Because I asked him, he basically said no. I said, well, I'm not leaving it at that. I'm going to go on my own. Fair enough. And you're welcome on this program. Murph, I appreciate the time. I hope your recovery is going well. It's uh, it's up and down, but, you know, like everybody else's life. But we all got a closet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Uh, Stay in touch, Murph. Take care of yourself. Okay, you and your family be safe, buddy. Have a great day. You too, man. Bye-bye. Here we go. If you want to reach out, it's murph at nl.rogers.com. Very quickly before we get to the news, we did indeed speak with Kathy Bishop last week. She's from the Bonavista Status of Women's Council. They were organizing an event or a meeting to try to grapple with the housing concerns. And for some, it's not necessarily the affordability issue. It's simply availability. So, of course, Bonavista comes to life in the summertime with the visiting tourists, which further complicates access to a rental property. They have put a moratorium in place, if I remember correctly, out in the town of Bonavista about offering more permits or licenses for the short-term rentals, Airbnbs uh, and the like. So if you were one of the dozens, apparently, or some of 30-plus, that went to the meeting last night, and whether it be Kathy Bishop herself from the Bonavista Status of Women Council, if there was anything that you'd like to share, any innovative ideas or thoughts or where we go to next, because the 
just be about uh, Airbnbs. It's part of the conversation, I assume, especially in towns like Bonavista. You know, community what population with 34, 3,500 people out in Bonavista, and we're still trying to grapple with how we're simply going to deal with the housing issue here. Period. Some people boil it down to very fundamental stuff. You know, five percent of GS- GST for a four-unit affordable rental building, and or modular homes, or further tax breaks, and the 10% of the provincial sales tax that still remains in place. But if the need, based on forecasted population growth, is 60,000 units in six years, given the trades, issues, and all the rest, pretty interesting stuff. On that front, the numbers are out regarding population growth in the country, and the population, of course, has grown. We've now cleared 40 million people in Canada. Uh, In terms of population percentage-wise, to date, uh, today's data, well, I guess that was yesterday's data, coming from Stats Canada says there was a 3% growth in population. Alberta had the highest growth since the 1970s. The population of this province grew by 1.3% after, what, decades of population decline. We've actually grown in population, a couple of different reasons why. Obviously and notably immigration, because we still have death rates that outpace birth rates in this province. So unsustainable if we're talking about the need for a tax base and a population base to serve the needs and take the jobs and all the rest of it. Okay, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, tons of time left to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Tina. You're on the air. Um, hi, Patty. Um, I'm calling in to speak about the recent news of the uh, Sheriff's Office. Okay. Um, I feel like I had to call in because um, they're talking about the issues and stuff missing and a lot that's going on at the Sheriff's Office. And I feel like the public should know what's going on. Um, I haven't been shy about posting some of my information on social media recently. I currently have a case um, that's with Supreme Court filing a lawsuit against my union, uh, the Office of the High Sheriff, um, and government for how I was treated working at the Sheriff's Office. What happened? I called you several years back, Patty. Uh, um, I don't know if you can recall um, it was, I believe it was just before I left there to go to another job. Uh, just a little bit about how people are bullied and stuff. But my experience working at Sheriff's Office was not a good one. For the first few years, it was fine. Um, but then I, uh, something happened there when I was working with a few co-workers. And uh, I was basically brought into their personal information. And... Um, one of the employees tried to force me to go to court regarding personal stuff for her and the current manager that was there. Um, And it ended up becoming quite abusive towards me because I didn't do it. Uh, Long story short, I'm just going to say it. She was having an affair with the manager and he was trying to force us as employees to do whatever she wanted us to do. That was one part of it. Um, Another part, uh, there was an investigation brought up from the government and they were removed and we just went on to try to do our job. But working at the Sheriff's Office was a very toxic place. 
a very high volume of overturn because when employees came to work there, someone knew and they started to realize what it was like there. They could not wait to get out. So there's many, many problems going on. And government knows, minister knows, the previous premier knows. I sent an email about my current situation to the present premier of what was going on. And the biggest problem there is they protect people. They are protecting bullies. They are protecting a sexual harasser. There's a much bigger problem there. And since I have come forward and been posting a few things, I've heard from other employees in the Justice Department that have been treated similar. What's the status of the the court case that you currently have in place? And if you don't mind me asking, what does it involve? Sorry. It involves uh, my union mate, who have already sent me a statement of defence, denying, of course, which I expected, because it is what that is what they do. Um, I have recordings of meetings between myself, a person that was supposed to be helping me in union, and the president, Jerry Earl of him telling me about a person I applied for positions with at Supreme Court that she would never give me a position because she didn't like me. Now, this woman didn't know me. This was since 2009. So there's multiple issues within our Department of Justice, the High Sheriff's Office, Supreme Court, and probably other divisions that people just don't come forward and talk about. And I'm one of those people that's coming out, sorry, a person that's coming out and telling it. They stall, they shove stuff under the rug that they don't want people to find out, and the sheriff's office has been a mess for years. They do things they're not supposed to do, and this, when I heard the Auditor General come out, I just had to call in. I know before I left there, there were boxes and boxes of information shred of paperwork. Some of that paperwork could have been what the Auditor General needed. I'm not so sure it's in her purview to deal with those types of matters as opposed to operational financial audits and those types of things. I suppose I could check in with her if this is something that her office deals with, but I don't think it is. These human resources matters, they belong with the department itself, and I would suggest that's the Department of Justice and Public Safety, because ongoing issues, whether it be with harassment or bullying or whatever the case may be, I don't think that's Denise Hanrahan's job, but it certainly is the minister's. Yes, I fully understand it. I'm just trying to make her aware. Yep. But in regards of the HR department, I went to every route, Patty, that they teach you and tell you you're supposed to go to, and I know other people have too. The problem there is the government and the HR and, these, and the Department of Justice, they are there to help themselves. They're not really there to help the employee that's going through what they're putting them through. Well, um, obviously... Themselves, and that's, that's the saddest part of it. They are spending millions of dollars on employees, taxpayers' dollars, because this bullying and harassing and sexual harassing is being swept under the rug because they don't want people to find out. That's taxpayers' dollars that no one wants to talk about. It needs to be talked about. 
and we can certainly talk about it like we did uh, in this conversation on the program. You know, people's need to feel safe on the job is obviously very real because we hear, whether it be physical issues regarding registered nurses and or emotional and mental taunts and threats and harassment, sexual and otherwise. I mean, it just makes for an unmanageable workplace and a dangerous situation for people. Absolutely. You can't be teaching the public and putting it out in public that um, and these new programs and these pilot projects and saying you're going to enforce it and mislead people when employees that are working behind the scenes know different. And I'm not saying all employees, but there are many. There are many. Like I said, I was surprised to hear from a few that I heard from, not even realizing they were going through the same kind of things. And someone, someone needs to put a stop to it and someone needs to talk about this stuff because people are misled that's why that the sheriff's office is so dysfunctional it's i mean i could go on and on and on Uh, i have a police report filed i'm just waiting to see how the process plays out Stay in touch. And now we do know that there's whistleblower protection in place, but that doesn't mean that anybody acts on the information that they're given, anonymously or otherwise, which is, is cannot be the case. Right. Like something needs to be done. Something needs to start addressing this. Something, something, someone needs to, to listen to the people that are coming forward. There were two investigations done for me, Patty. The second investigation was because I pretty much had to keep proving my work to people uh, up in HR, and nothing was done. The second investigation was a high sheriff that was fired. I came forward and told HR what he was doing, how he was treating people, how he was treating me, what he did to me, and they totally came back and told me he didn't do anything wrong. But months later, he was fired for the exact thing I told him he was doing. It's in the news. It's public knowledge. So... Like, it's insane. And and they're still covering up for people that are there now. I appreciate the update. As troubling as it is, you're always welcome. Keep me in the loop, Tina. Thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome. Enjoy your day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Those stories are... The pathetic, right? I mean, if people know what's going on or are unwilling to act on it, then that is unacceptable, obviously. A couple of quick ones before we get to the break. You know, sticking with the AG's report regarding the Office of the High Sheriff, you know, if there is legislation that is there to be adhered to or to abide by, and that includes producing financial audited statements annually, and then there's four consecutive years of that not being the case, and as Denise Hanrahan said, it is possible to catch up. It becomes a bit of a task, given that there's a lot of data that needs to be compiled and audits that need to happen. But... You know, obviously, until the Auditor General gets in and reveals these types of things, I mean, I had no earthly idea there was four years without financial statements at the Office of the High Sheriff. I mean, and then, of course, we talk about the legislative requirement and seemingly no repercussions other than a need or to be told that this must be done. Okay, must be done, but maybe, just maybe, if they miss one year, then we can deal with it immediately. Okay. Mentioned, you know, yesterday an announcement regarding education infrastructure and getting tons of reaction via email. I'd be welcome to offer some of these reactions live on the program. You can be just caller on line number one if you don't want to give us your name. That's fine. But we know, look, this is not any sort of real revelation because there was a school mentioned in the uh, most recent budget for Camel Terrace. And it does 
beg some questions. And of course, look, if it's a growing community and there's a need for school there, so be it. But if we don't even know how many students are going to try to accommodate, nor do we know what kind of grades are going to be uh, represented inside the school, that's a lot of questions that are pretty important to answer because everything about the configuration of the school, the amenities in the school, they all differ or they vary between the different uh, groups, you know, whether you're a primary, elementary, junior high, or high school. So a lot of untold uh, issues there yet to be understood. Add to it, and I've heard from, oh, I don't know, a dozen parents of high school age or soon to be high school age students out in the community paradise the largest and fastest growing community in the country that does not have a high school right and it's not the data that i compile it is the data that was being considered by the school district if paradise was at the very top of the heap and absolutely no mention of portugal cove st phillips but yet the opposite was the government's announcement build one down in the cove and nothing for paradise now the premier met with the mayor dan bobbitt about you know and acknowledged that he's a terrific advocate for his community but no commitment to move forward with the creation or the construction of a high school in that community and even if you look at the numbers the numbers of students being bussed out of the cove to say uh, for instance pwc versus the numbers of students being bussed out of paradise the schools further afield it's not even close you want to pick up on that or anything else you can do it after this break don't go away welcome back to the program I'm sure this is going to get more and more traction as the days and weeks roll. But to be told now that the federal liberals are talking about cutting a billion dollars from the defense budget, even though just a few weeks ago committing in full to NATO to say we're going to spend 2% of GDP on defense. Now, currently the country spends about 1.3% of GDP on the defense budget. So the military has been struggling for a number of years here. We've heard all these uh, court cases, and there's been uh, verdicts of guilty regarding sexual harassment and sexual assault and all the rest of it. Enrollment in the armed forces has also been struggling. They are unable to keep up with what is the need annually for people enlisting in the various uh, branches or arms of the armed forces. So this question here, if they're saying now it's going to strike some difficult conversations inside the military, and that's coming directly from Defense, uh, uh, Defense Chief Staff General Wayne Iyer, there's no way to take a billion dollars out and not have a negative impact on operations and military readiness. Of course, when you add in NATO, there's been a heightened or a more keen focus on NATO, the defensive alliance that it is, over the last number of years, of course, mainly because of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So... When we've had conversations about even business groups saying, you know, it's time to take national security seriously here. It has implications with the integrity of elections. It has implications with uh, spying. It has implications with the economy. So there's a lot to this conversation. So I'm a little surprised we haven't had anyone, not even via email, anyone react to that story. But that is going to be a big one. There's no question in my mind. Uh, very quick before, oh, come on, let's keep going. Let's go to line number one. Uh, good morning, Duran. You're on the air. Hi, how you doing? Okay, you? I'm good. Great. I'm just calling in uh, from the ETC. Uh, we're in, uh, in support of uh, Brenda Lee's drive across Newfoundland, and we're uh, working with the Southwest Coast Alliance with in reference to the wind hydrogen project that's coming up. Sure. First, and before I'm, we move on, Duran, who's Brenda Lee and what's she doing? She is actually with the Southwest Coast Alliance, who is uh, a... a, a newer group that's bringing attention to the project and the effects it's going to have on the local areas, uh, much in the same way that the ETC has been expressing their concerns over the past year regarding this project. 
And so um, she's doing a drive across Newfoundland to bring awareness. And uh, so we're in support of that as she is uh, going about to express the concerns of the people in the area and to make it more uh, known across the province. And that is just not a local issue. Uh, On from that, um, I want to discuss something that's really important is uh, the company's been touting all along the importance of hold on, jobs that will be created along with their spin-off jobs. Um, you know, they were saying for the plant and that once everything's up and running, they'll have like 300 permanent jobs. And on their site, they claim to be having upwards of six, 6,500 uh, spin-off jobs. Well, the thing is, there's, there's no guarantee that these spin-off jobs are going to be long-lasting other than whether they will endure just for the length of the project. Now, what people are failing to take into consideration is that based on the environmental uh, impact study that was conducted by the company, they've, in their paperwork and documentation, they put in there that, that the risk of uh, the effect it'll have on the uh, local coastal waters and the impact on fisheries. And as it stands right now, there are about 2,500 people in that in the fisheries that can be negatively affected by this and their jobs possibly put in jeopardy as a result of this project. Let, let's talk about that a little further because I, when people talk about birds and uh, flora and fauna and access to the traditional grounds to hunt or to berry pick, I get all that. What is the concern regarding the fishery? Because, you know, if this was an offshore wind farm, uh, absolutely would have an impact on marine life. But what is the concern with the onshore wind? Is it directly related to the ammonia plant? Or help me understand exactly what you think the concern is there. Well, yes. Okay. So in part of the plan, uh, which was released by World Energy, one of their intentions is to uh, dredge Port Harmon which for decades was a pulp and paper mill and has untold amounts of contaminants in the water. And so there's a requirement to dredge that port in order to uh, give it the depth they need for bringing in their ships and and whatnot because the port there is fairly shallow. And their intent is to take all this material and dump it into the bay. And apart from that, they've announced that they're going to use the old uh, piping system that uh, the pulp and paper company used to dump their wastewater from their electrolysis out into the bay. And they even admit there on the thing that it could have an adverse effect on all bottom-dwelling marine life. What's the wastewater that would be dumped? I mean, electrolysis, I'm not a scientist, but basically when separating H2O, the aftermath of that is pretty much vapor. So what's the wastewater that would be generated at the electrolysis site? That is something I'm not sure of. Is that something that wasn't defined? Okay. Right. But but what's concerning is that it is serious enough to where they claim that it could have an adverse effect on any bottom-dwelling marine life, i.e. lobsters, you know, uh, any, like, a flounder down around the bottom or whatnot. And so that being said, right, uh, um, that is of, of certainly of, of grave concern. And apart from the, the proposed dumping of uh, materials from the harbor into the bay. And then if you combine that with the possibility, some people are concerned down the road, just say if a 
if an incident didn't happen because ships go down quite often, uh, you know. And so if a, a ship actually went down that's carrying ammonia, um, a spill of that size could actually, according to scientific journals, could wipe out square miles of ocean and make it totally sterile. Well, of course, there's copious amounts of all types of products that are currently being shipped via uh, the sea or the ocean that could pose a massive risk. I mean, Exxon Valdez just oh, pops yeah, in my yeah, mind yeah, immediately. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, I just want to make sure. I just want to make sure I understand what we're talking about. So, dredging Port Harmon is dredging the seabed in Port Harmon. So the worry is that there's toxins that are currently captured by the sea floor that would be disturbed and released, or is it the water is the water is the water is just moving dirt around from the no, sea no, floor? No, 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 no. It, it's, it's what's captured into the sea floor, into the sediment over the decades that uh, production was underway. And with all the shipping and whatever is lifts out of ships and that over time, and whatever other things have been poured in there <laughs> that people probably aren't fully aware of it, uh, you know, with regards to the activity that was done there during the, uh, the time that the actual American base was there. And so, you know, these, these are things that really seriously need to be addressed and the effect it can have. And then when you consider the, <clears throat> the further proposals to extend um, the wind energy, just not on land, but out into the oceans, you know, all along the southwest coast, that's going to add further strain onto the environment as it is. And as there are studies out there to show that uh, when it comes to ocean-based turbines, that there is an adverse effect on marine life with the proximity to these turbines. And so that being said, um, <clears throat> you know, with the, with the possible risks that are involved, uh, that's one of the reasons why the ETC and, and many organizations uh, that we've been in contact with, we've gotten over 20 letters of support from various organizations, provincially and nationally, that are calling for a federal assessment. Because when you consider that um, things like a federal assessment can take some time, and the fact that the environmental regulations that were, in my opinion, slapped together haphazardly, uh, you know, within within a, a few months, by a provincial government for a mega project, you know, is is worrisome, um, because you're testing unproven regulation against a mega project. Now, if it was a case to where a company was coming in and putting in ten or fifteen turbines, and you know they were applying a the, the new regulations against that. Okay, you know, there, there's some control, there's some measure of, of safety on that. And then it gives the government the chance to verify whether the steps they put in place are adequate or not. But when you're slapping a new policy against a mega project that's going to affect the whole region, you know, t to me, that's irresponsible. And of course, wind is not new. The newness here, the industry that's in its infancy, is the electrolysis, hydrogen, ammonia for shipment. So there's uh, fair enough. Look, people would be concerned if well, they were concerned. Yes. Sorry, go yes, ahead. Well, wind, wind, wind energy is not new. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. Um, but however, when you look at it on the magnitude that they want to do it, and it's never been done before, especially by this company. Other, or any big project for that matter, um, that's where the concern comes in. That's where uh, the federal assessment is more uh, uh, crucial because of the fact that the wind energy may not be new, 
but technically it's new to the province. You know, they have some little projects they've done, okay, one or two here and there with tiny little turbines. But when you're looking at, you know, hundreds of turbines on a small landmass that's never been done before, you know, it's not a matter of, okay, yeah, wind energy is, you know, uh, safe in some standards, but not at this scale. You know, it's never been done at this scale on an area so small with such diversity, biodiversity, rare plants, and uh, people that's many people living in proximity so that's a lot of questions and concerns and so we can't just simply say oh wind energy you know it's been around for decades and it's safe sure wind is safe but you have to look at um any damages that occur to the turbines the cost of putting them in the damage that that does to the environment uh the cement you know the, the chemicals involved there, there's there's a lot of many a lot of many factors a lot of factors in there we can't just whitewash the whole thing and just say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's just wind energy. It's not. No, no, no. I don't think, well, I'm certainly not trying to whitewash stuff, whether it be lubricants or cement or anything else. You know, some areas of comfort for some is the fact that it's going to be polluter pay and they'll have to reclaim the land as they found it after the fact that it's never going to be done 100%. And I understand that to be true. They'll have to pay for any proposed infrastructure with integration into our own electric grid, which is something I think all us ratepayers had concerns with. Very quickly before I let you go, Duran. You know, when we look at out in Come By Chance, or you look on the Buren Peninsula, or you look out in Botwood for the Exploits Valley crowd, and or Port of Port Peninsula, I know, not to say that there's not people opposed to the projects in those other areas, but nowhere near as vocal and or as numerous as the folks who are speaking out about World Energy GH2. i just kick uh, kicking the tire here and get your opinion. For me, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we know who's behind it and whether or not people have a kind or a favorable or not favorable opinion of John Risley. That kind of feels like it fuels some of this position that people are taking. Do you think there's anything to that? Partially, but uh, one of the one of the things that's being overlooked is the close interconnectivity between uh, uh, people in the company and various government ministers within Newfoundland, right? And so that leads to a lot of unanswered questions and speculation. You know whether that that uh, association is a little too close for comfort, and the, it's the world energy thing, yes, because. It's what's, they're the ones that are in this area. If it was Pattern Energy or someone else and they did the same thing, same approach and whatnot, the, the, the reception would still be the same. I don't know, because everyone, right. I mean, World Energy's footprint is about 107,000. 107,000 hectares. Uh, for instance, Everwind on the Bureau Peninsula, 270,000 hectares. So still massive in scope and scale. This is a question from a listener, last one because I'm late for the break. With mm-hmm. World Energy's approach to trying to clean up what you were suggesting are the contaminants in Port Harmon or otherwise, is there even a plan in place for someone other than Wind Ener- World Energy GH2 to tackle some of these problems? Or if not, who's responsible? Well, that, that's a good question. Uh, you're, you're you're talking to a person that's just a, I'm just a lay person. You know, I'm a retired I'm retired and stuff. Understood. I'm no expert on this. And 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 the thing is, this is something that should have been uh, through proper consultation with communities and various organizations uh, that could have and should have been addressed at the onset. And it's things like this that you bring up is what uh, uh, gives. Uh, reason to the resistance and well resistance to to the 
you know, uh, people's concerns within regards to this project. And when you go by land mass, uh, you've got to understand, too, you're looking at uh, areas that are not confined by a small footprint. The port of port Peninsula is only 160 square miles, right? It's a little isthmus. It's, it's a small peninsula, and they're cramming as much turbines on there as they can within the given space. Now, when you take other areas that you have mentioned, they don't have those constraints. So they can put their turbines in other locations. They can spread them further apart. There's a lot more leeway in that. And so to do a land size comparison, in this instance, I feel is, is it's, it's not accurate. It's not giving the proper picture to listeners and to people across the province. Absolutely fair enough, because not every land mass is created equal. So I wasn't trying to pretend that, you know, wow, world energy is so small and everyone is so big. It was just, you know, some of the comparisons about pushback, negativity, opposition, questions being asked. Yeah. That's yeah. the point, not to and say, what, oh, what's your problem? Yeah. yeah. And what we also have here that also restricts the availability for land mass, and one of the reasons why they're constricted is that we have mining operations, and there are huge swaths of areas here that uh, have endangered plants, right, that are rare and found nowhere else in the world, which is unique to the area. If you get other areas in Newfoundland, they do not have these restrictions, so they're able to use more of that land mass for, that, for, the, you know, for their project. Here, there's a bit more restriction based on that because you also have watersheds, you have you know, community pastures, you have a lot of other things that's going to affect how much land this company can use because when you look at their original proposal these turbines were spread out everywhere it was a 464 of them they were going to put in and now because of some of the land mass restrictions they've had to put it down to like i think 140 something because of uh protected watersheds uh protected barrens and things like that so you know that that puts things into a lot more perspective in my opinion uh duran i appreciate the time this morning thanks for this Okay, no problem. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, uh, there you go. Uh, And, you know, we were told there are mechanisms that can trigger uh, federal assessment on these fronts, but I've been unable to find out what those triggers are. If you know more than me, which you probably do, you can join us after this. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Well, there you go. Just heard from Duran out in the Port of Port Peninsula and their local concerns with what is very, very new. There's no absolutely... Can't dismiss localized concerns because it's one thing for me to be sitting on the opposite side of the island. It's nowhere near me. The close might be just out of the come-by chance. Uh, what part of our gentry, I suppose, with Pattern Energy as well. But if you want to add to that conversation, and there's lots of people in support, because, you know, where you are depends on your localized and individual needs and you... You know, if we're talking about the economic shot in the arm, which is absolutely the possibility to come with this, that's... Uh, I think an associated part of the conversation. And if you want to talk about it, you can do it. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Okay. How you doing? Good. I'm just going to check you off speakerphone here. Okay. There we go. Um, yeah, no, I was going to call in about the oil and gas, like I just told, and uh, I just, I'll, I'll call back next week, but just say all these people that think oil and gas has got to be gone, well, they better have their farm ready and their horse in the cart. Um, that's all I'll say about that for now. Okay. But uh, anyways, I was just going through Holy Road, and there was uh, 
uh, a place there. There had two fire trucks, and people were just flying by. No brakes, no nothing, just going straight by. Fire trucks there, emergency people on the road, and then, a, and then an ambulance come up the road. And a transport driver, he pulled over, and I I don't know if he got stuck or not because, you know, the, the, the shoulders and hold aren't very big. And uh, I pulled over as far as I could, and the ambulance was able to get through between us. But the people out there just don't give a rot's arse about what's, you know, about emergency people. And it just drives me nuts that they, they're, they're, they're just so empty-headed about it. We've heard the RCMP on this, the RNC on this, saying that they notice it far too common for people to just completely ignore the move over laws. It's not about common sense and not wanting to be the person who strikes and kills somebody who was working alongside the highway, like someone who was killed on the Outer Ring Road there a number of years ago. Yes. The law is clear. And a couple of things that don't get factored in. So when you're approaching any emergency vehicle that stopped alongside of the roadway, you are obliged to slow down, proceed with caution, and if you can switch lanes, if it's safe to do so, to do it. What it also includes is tow trucks. I know a guy in the tow truck business. He yep. says that 90% of the times people completely dismiss the fact that his tow truck is actually part of the move over laws. And he's, you know, looking over his shoulder and with trepidation every time, especially on roads like the Outer Ring Road, for instance, where the, the rate of speed is just off the charts to begin with. But I see it as well as you do. And, you know, people are just hell bent to get to the next red light quicker than me. That's yeah, simply uh, what I've we had, see. I've had a number of uh, tow truck friends of mine that have passed because of accidents like that you know like they're they're under a vehicle trying to hook it up and their legs are passed out and somebody just drives over them and it's just absolutely disgusting that people once you see any type of flashing light of whatever it doesn't matter if it's orange blue black white you know red slow down and just see what's going on around you before you carry on anymore it's just absolutely disgusting to see these people driving like this Happens all the time. The intersection of McDonald Drive and uh, Torbay Road, I'm going to say yeah. a month ago. And this case wasn't a, a first responder vehicle stop, but it was an ambulance with the sirens and lights going. You can hear the ambulance coming from quite a distance. So it was traveling along McDonald Drive, uh, heading west. We could hear it. We could see it. We had the, re the green light. It flipped while we saw the ambulance approaching. And lo and behold, someone jumped right out in front of it proceeded on the way down Torbay Road. Now, I don't know if they had earbuds in or they're simply uh, blissfully unaware, but boy, oh boy, we were 10 feet from a real uh, torpedo collision there. And here was the ambulance, you know, carrying the passenger via emergency and nobody cared, or that person didn't care anyway. Yeah, and, and, and it just frustrates me so much to see it, um, you know, because the speeds are out there. Like, even when there's not an emergency vehicle around, the speeds around, you know, they're just astronomical. There's no way to be, you know, you shouldn't be doing 80 in a 50 zone anywhere. And with the state of our roads out here and in, in, around the bay, it's just, uh, there's no need of it. And um, my just, my, I just, my thoughts and prayers always go out to all the first responders and everybody out there who's, uh, you know, attending these accidents and everything like that. Take care, and uh, for the rest of you buffoons who don't think about it, get ahead about you. Appreciate the time, Rob. Thanks for the call. Okay, thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, very real. We all know it to be true. Uh, to that... Mentioning first responders, just say hello and a good morning to the paramedics. 
we have been actively trying to get an update as to where we are with the consultant or pragmatically speaking about consolidating 60 of the uh, contracted ambulance services out there into one entity operated by the health division. We don't know. It's been pretty difficult to try to get any additional information and the problem there is not only the fact that we're not really sure what this potential hub and spoke might look like if it would mean more or fewer ambulances more or fewer paramedics but while we're all waiting for updated information on that front the unfortunate reality is we're already struggling with retention of paramedics and consequently as i'm told by paramedics is that they're seeing more and more of their colleagues leave for more certainty and more work-life balance and pay and the lack of disparity between the private and the public sector. So for the paramedics listening to the show, we're still trying to get that info because that's pretty important stuff. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about animal control out in the city of Cornerbrook. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Rod, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm sitting here atop Single Hill now looking over beautiful St. John's, and it's a beautiful day here. Yeah, is it smoky there? Because uh, there was a photograph this morning of the full moon with the with Cabot Tower as the foreground, and it looked pretty smoky. I haven't really experienced it too bad here, but I see all the air quality warnings and all the rest of it. How's it up on the hill? It's really clear here right now. Uh, I know you were talking about, uh, I could see the smoke a couple of days ago when it was up here. But it looks, as far as I can see, it looks to be uh, uh, clear. It might be a bit of haze up towards Dannyville there, but I'm not sure if that's just... Uh, regular haze from the, from the clouds or it might be a bit of smoke but fair enough it's a, it's a lot less than it was a few days ago anyways right good what's on your mind i was uh, chatting with some home to visit of course visit my mother and some friends in cornerbrook and i got chatting with the uh, local spca and you know there, there's a real issue out there now with the uh municipal enforcement and uh, that look after the uh animal control and the biggest problem is number one they're not trained and uh, uh, at 4.30 when they finish for the day or 5 o'clock, they just go home. Uh, if an animal is injured or needs to be attended to, the one is roaming or whatever, uh, the animal uh, control, animal um, SPCAs and animal uh, groups have, are called instead. So you've got people uh, that work as volunteers uh, getting called 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning to go and look after an animal issue. When we have a uh, an animal control uh, department with the city of Cornerbrook, um, you know, not only are they not trained, animals are getting injured. And I have one of the animals, small little dog called Bailey, that I adopted uh, myself and Tina adopted back in in the fall of last year. <clears throat> and uh, when the animal control officer went to get him, they put this loop around his neck. And uh, without the proper training, injured the animal, injured Bailey. And now he's, you know, he's doing okay now. He's recovered from it. But there was a point there when they didn't think he was going to survive it. The, the injury was that, that severe. Um, and, you know, this is a, a small little uh, Shih Tzu type dog, right? Um, you know, uh, right now, when if you call uh, animal control, uh, they may or may not come. They don't, they don't have enough staff. And certainly, when when the when the timing stops, that's it. They're done. When their day is over, they are done. On the weekends, if they're not working, there's no animal control in Cornerbrook. So 
you know, this really needs to be addressed. Now, I, I did call and leave messages for a couple of the uh, councillors uh, and the mayor. I left messages when I was home last week. I did from here in, in Paradise. And I <clears throat> I called the animal control itself and left the message and didn't get any response from anybody. So I guess it's not something that they want to deal with publicly uh, or they want to deal with at all. So at what point do we finally say enough is enough? Uh, right now, uh, animals are left to roam in the nighttime uh, in Cornbrook. It's It's gone rampant. It's According to the SPCA, NLS SPCA, this is the worst time it's ever been in the history of Cornerbrook since they've been in a group that uh, the cat population has exploded because nobody, there's not enough animal groups to look after what's happening. Again, all going back to animal control and not having uh, the people there to look out to it. Uh, the... The animal uh, uh, jail, I'm sorry, the animal, uh, the city's city pound is deplorable. It hasn't been upgraded for probably 25 or 30 years since it was put there, or 40 years ago. Uh, they had one dog put in there, and I called about that uh, several months back, and uh, about the, the deplorable conditions that this dog was left in and being held. Uh, anyways, immediately the dog was transferred to St. John's, assessed uh, by a dog person, and they realized the dog was gentle, was, didn't need to be destroyed, and it's found a good home since then. So somebody in the Cornerbrook, uh, you know, the scheme of things with the city of Cornerbrook has fallen down on the job here. We have no animal control after 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the evening, none on the weekends. They don't work overtime, and uh, apparently they're not interested in talking about it. So, you know, I mean, that's enough of that, right? Let's just, just see what we can get going here. What's the actual extent of the problem with roaming animals, dogs or otherwise, in the city? Like, is it is it a big deal that is causing problems in the city? Yes. Uh, so now that there's no... If, if you have an animal roaming, now people can just put their dog out. And they know there's no animal control, so there's nothing going to get done about it. The animal's not going to be picked up. Now, it might get struck and killed or injured. And then the people that are called are the SPCAs or or uh, Scaredy Cat Rescue or one of the like-minded uh, rescue groups will get a call. Uh, and they don't have the resources. They're volunteers. You know, so when my friend, who's the uh, who's the shelter manager of the SPCA in Cornwall, gets a call at 2 o'clock in the morning from the police, there's a dead dog on the road or whatever, or an injured dog. She's got to go get you. Know, she's a volunteer. She's not being paid to do this, but up she gets and goes because it's in her heart to do this. But we do have an animal control a department within the city of Cornerbrook, and they're not responding, and they're not trained to respond. Uh, once 4.30 comes, see you later, guys. I'm, I'm gone home. Right, And uh, this has been ongoing for quite some time now. Uh, so dogs are being left to roam. By a lot of it by the owners uh, and cats. There's a there's a feral cat explosion in Cornerbrook right now uh, that needs to be addressed. And all the animal rescue groups are overwhelmed, uh, to, to say the least, at the moment. I was unaware of it, and of course, I can't have my finger on the pulse or ear to the ground on all no, these issues, can't. so I'm really appreciative of uh, your call and the information here this morning. We can follow up directly with the city uh, proper. Uh, anything else quickly, Rob, because there's a caller, Colleen, in the queue wants to respond to your call right after you. 
Excellent. So, no, that's it, Patty. I really appreciate, once again, you uh, you taking the time to speak to me on whatever my issues are uh, in the future and, and in the past. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Rod. Take care, buddy. You Bye-bye. Too, Bye-bye. All right, let's get a response to Rod's call online, everyone, from Colleen. Colleen, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. First-time caller. Welcome. Um, I have to refute a few issues about the SPCA and the City of Cornerbrook's animal control. Okay. Because I've called, I've called the SPCA about a dog a couple of weeks ago, and it was on a Saturday. I still have not received an answer from them. And the city of Cornerbrook, I called the emergency line, and he called me back 10 minutes later, and he came up and got the dog. So I, if you call the emergency line about a roaming dog, animal control will come on the weekends. Yeah, okay, so uh, the way I heard it from Rod is that, you know, the concern is maybe not a full complement of staff, plus when the day is over, whether that be 4 o'clock, 4.30, 5 o'clock, then that's it, they go home. And on the weekend, it's hit or miss whether or not you'll get a response. So I guess in your circumstance, you got the response from the uh, the officials, and that's a good thing. But, I, yes. you know, I think there's a lot to what Rod said, and we will follow up with Mayor Parsons about, you know, where they are with how many officers are in place, how many there is a full quotient of officers, the issues with schedule weekend or after supper all the rest of it but if it worked out for you that's a good thing let's hope it works out for all yes but there there is a huge animal control problem in, in cornerbrook and newfoundland altogether even concerning cats so i mean it's like you can't control everybody when they open their door and let their dog out that's or true. their cat that's true. you know yep. and yep. some of these animals aren't road savvy and they do get hit and they do get killed and you know I've had a, one certain dog a couple of times and I told them the next time I get their dog it's not going back to them you know like I'm always out catching animals because <laughs> I have three dogs okay what kind of you dogs know? do you have and I have two St. Bernards and a little mixed breed wow That's some yeah. big animals so, in the house yes I like my big I like my giant breeds fair enough so but it's uh, it is a huge issue, and you know when people chase these animals instead of taking a picture, phoning the number because most people who love their animals put it on Facebook. They they try to catch them, and most times you're not going to be able to catch them. And there's a danger associated with that too. If you're not an actual professional, yes. you're just a concerned citizen. Colleen, we're up against the news. Anything else you'd like to say before we say goodbye this morning? No, that's it. Thank you very much. I appreciate your call. And you have a wonderful day, Patty. Thank you, Colleen. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, and on that note, uh, we had the vice president of the Labrador SPCA yesterday on the show, Bonnie Learning. They're in a tough spot. They're running out of funds. They might be unable to accept more animals maybe uh, as early as October. Now, I think and I heard that they got a pretty sizable donation yesterday, which is excellent news. But get a load of this. Took in 35 dogs in 24 hours. They took in 500 dogs last year on over 360 so far this year. And with the running out of the funds and the cost of operations and staffing and veterinary services and food and all the rest they're up against it in labrador uh let's take a break my understanding is coming up after the news we're expecting a call from the conservative member for carlton he's the leader of the conservative party of canada that's pierre poliev so if you want to suggest where we go with mr poliev and or anything else under the sun you can either join us via email or twitter or my preference if you give us a call or after the news don't go away 
Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number 10 and say good morning to the Conservative member elected in and serving the riding of Carlton. He's the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. That's Pierre Polyev. Mr. Polyev, you're on the air. Good to be with you. Thanks for the invite. Welcome to the show. So right off the bat, I guess, you know, in the world of slogans on the campaign trail, one of the go-to for you is Axe the Tax. And there's been some discrepancy, even inside the Liberal Party, about taxes, specifically on home heating fuels. I'll let you talk to that for a second before we move to uh, some other issues. Well, as you know, uh, the, the Trudeau Liberals have brought in this carbon tax. It applies on home heating fuel, gas, diesel, uh, natural gas, uh, and indirectly on anything that has to be moved or heated. So it does raise your grocery prices, obviously, if you tax the fishers and farmers who produce the food and the truckers who ship it, then you tax all who buy the food. Uh, the winter is coming, and, of course, the tax is in place now. Uh, and the Liberal plan is to quadruple the tax from $0.14 cents a litre all the way up to $0.61 cents a litre. Conservatives want to axe the tax to bring home affordable heat, gas, and groceries. And, of course, that quadrupling is over the course of eight years, not overnight, just to add that for context and clarity. So with the carbon tax, and, you know, it was once... The Conservatives were all about the market, right? Pressure points for price. And the market will be able to settle and solve some of these issues, climate change and otherwise. That's gone by the wayside. I don't know exactly why. But insofar as combating climate change, you're talking about unleashing the natural resources of the country. But one of the technologies you talk about on that front is carbon capture. I'm not so sure how much I know about carbon capture or you, but I have read a study in the recent past that the proponents are saying captures about 90, 80 to 90 percent. But when they investigated 15 flagship uh, operations or projects with carbon capture, the numbers were more like 10 to 13 percent. Does that offer a dubious respect to carbon capture or is that still the go to plan for you and your party? It's one of the plans. Uh, just a quick correction. The, the quadrupling of the tax will happen year after year over six and a half years, not eight years, because the full quadrupling to 61 cents a litre will be hit by 2030, which is only six and a half years from now. And the increases will happen every single year between now and then. Um, so that, uh, back, back, though, to the issue of carbon capture, um, we believe in incentivizing the capture and storage and even utilization of carbon uh, and we believe in incentives to make that a profitable enterprise for Canadians. But it's not our only proposal. We also believe in small modular nuclear reactors to help New Brunswick, uh, Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta replace coal-fired electricity with zero-emitting nuclear. We have the high, biggest supply of uh, uranium in the world. We have nuclear engineers that are second to none, particularly in Ontario. Uh, and we have at least four provinces who've signed on to an MOU to make that happen. That's one way. Second, we want to fast-track the, uh, the approval of tidal power and uh, hydroelectric dams uh, so that we can increase that production. Uh, and finally, we want to um, incentivize uh, the and speed up the approval of mining of critical minerals in Canada so that instead of importing electric car battery components from coal-burning China, we can do it using our clean mining technology in this country. Yeah, we'll break that down a little further. Inside the world of carbon capture, 
you know, there's a school of thought that says that's basically the fossil fuel industry's attempt to allow their operations to continue longer than they maybe will or should or could into the future. But I'm not so sure it works the way that it's intended. And, of course, it can't be a one solution. There's not a silver bullet here to talk about emissions, controls, incentives, or otherwise. You mentioned hydroelectricity. I know you're talking about an in support of pipelines to get the oil produced, whether it be in the Alberta's oil sands, the, of course, the off to the Pacific Coast and or the whole Energy East Corridor. But regarding hydro, there is ample opportunity, whether it be for nuclear power generation or hydroelectricity to flow. The problem is provincial jurisdiction and territorial spats that happen. Would you propose either a tariff-free or a scheduled tariff to flow hydro across the country? Because now we're talking about things like the Atlantic Loop selling to New England and the northeastern states, when in fact we have a huge thirst for power right in where you are today in, Ont- in Ontario. Would you put an east-west electricity corridor in place? I would strongly support that. I think that Ontario would have been better to buy electricity from its two neighbours, Manitoba and Quebec, than it was to spend insane numbers of subsidies on windmill and solar panel projects that did not ultimately produce very much electricity at all. Uh, That said, I now know Quebec is is facing an an energy shortage of its own because of the increase uh, demand on their grid, they have to double their electrical generation between now and I think it's 2050. So they have to have rapid approval of new uh, projects. Manitoba, I know, is having some success in selling its electricity to the, the northern United States. That is actually good for the environment because it replaces dirty coal fire south of the border. But what we need to do is produce more clean, green, emissions-free electricity and make it more affordable rather than trying to make traditional oil and gas more expensive. Well, that really comes with the proximity to market, right? And that's where you mentioned Quebec. 15% of their portfolio is at the upper structure, which is in Labrador. The concern there is even if you're trying to satisfy Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, or others, we can't flow the power. We just can't get it there because of all of these provincial arbitrary boundaries that have been put in place. Let's stick with groceries, you know, and we'll get to housing and things. There's an issue regarding, and now this report from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. One in every $7 spent on groceries by the typical Canadian family is spent on dairy products, and that is in part or in full because of supply management. You've got permits in Alberta to have a dairy cow. In Alberta, the permit is around $50,000, and then one in $7 spent on dairy products is uh, coming from supply management. Does that exist under your government if indeed you're successful? We're not proposing any changes in that field. Uh, the reason is that uh, right now, the uh, they're, they're to to end that prog- program, you'd have to buy out the farmers. And there's estimates that it would be in the billions, tens of billions of dollars potentially to pay for all the quota that the farmers already own. So our view is the way you bring down agricultural costs is by getting rid of the carbon tax and by ending the proposed mandates that would limit the use of fertilizer because that would just simply make it more expensive to produce food here in Canada, force us to buy more foreign food and drive up the cost for consumers. So we would ax the tax, get rid of these uh, mandates uh, on fertilizer so that our farmers can actually produce more nutrition for every acre farmed. That's how you make uh, farming products more affordable. Uh, My understanding of fertilizer was an optional program, but the inputs have come down. 
So people will talk about corporate greed, even though margins are pretty razor thin at the grocery stores or the grocery retailers. Machinery fuel down 27% since its peak last year. Fertilizer down 17%. Overall, farm products are nearly 11% cheaper compared to a year earlier. So some of the tax-related measures, I wonder will we ever see grocery prices come back to earth. On that vein, when the Prime Minister summons the CEOs of the five largest retailers, which uh, make up about 80% of the market, to stabilize by Thanksgiving, I'm not so sure how much sense it makes, but there's got to be some mechanisms. Uh, actually, in your opinion, should there be mechanisms for the inputs that have come down to that be reflected in prices in the grocery store? The only way to make that happen is through more competition. We have a heavily concentrated grocery market after eight years of Trudeau, where effectively three corporate giants control all of the market. Uh, and that, that means that there's less choice and competition for consumers. But let's be, be, be blunt, regardless of how, who, who sells the groceries, if the government taxes the farmers who make the food and the truckers who ship the food, then they're effectively taxing the food itself. The carbon tax is a food tax, and it is notable that food has been rising faster than at any time in modern Canadian history ever since that carbon tax came into play. So one of the ways to bring home more affordable groceries is by axing the tax, and that's what conservatives will do. What do you mean by competition? It's hard for the small players to get involved, but some of that is the real overarching control that the big retailers have of distribution. You know, they've got the shelf space that they pay for, they own equity pieces, and a lot of the distribution change, does that mean, is that where you're going when you talk about competition? That's something I think we have to consider. Uh, the vertical, there's the, what we call horizontal competition, that's with competition between grocery stores, and then there's vertical competition, vertical uh, integration, which is the, the co-ownership of distribution and retail sales by the same players. And uh, that is another problem because, as you say, uh, it's hard for a local grocer to do business with uh, its competitor uh, to buy uh, wholesale products. So uh, I think the competition bureau needs to, uh, to look at how, whether or not we have too much vertical integration and how we can break up the big oligarchs and allow for more competition throughout the entire supply chain of the food we eat. But when we talk about supply management, the bill to buy out the farmers, the mechanism to break up the oligarchy that is obviously in place, I'm not even sure how that works, to be honest, in the world of free enterprise in this country. Dealing with overall inflation, went up 0.7% to reach 4%. It's not that long ago you were talking about Canadians hedging against inflation with Bitcoin or blockchain, and of course the volatility there very shortly after you made that recommendation, it cratered. So do you still stand by that? And can you tell me how blockchain works? Because I honestly don't know. So that is a, that's a decision for people to make themselves. They have the right to make any investment they want uh, to uh, protect the value of their money. And what I propose is that we uh, apply, the, apply the same free market principles to uh, blockchain technologies that we do in all other financial instruments and that uh, those new digital technologies that, uh, for example, behave like securities should be regulated like securities, those that behave like foreign currencies should be regulated like foreign currencies, and then you let people decide what they want to do with their own money. And that's the approach I would take. Uh, and I would notice, I would note that uh, there's a lot of things that have gone down for in terms of investment. Government bonds have collapsed in value. The bonds in Justin Trudeau's government have collapsed in value 
over the last three years after he bragged that interest rates were low. So um, the, the, the reality is that Justin Trudeau has created the worst inflation in 40 years and the highest increase in interest rates in monetary history with his inflationary money printing uh, deficits. And now we're on the verge of a mortgage crisis because the people who took on these massive mortgages to buy overpriced homes at the direction of the government are now seeing the rates, the amount of interest they pay go up by 300%. People are, are starting to lose their homes, and I think we are headed towards potentially a mortgage meltdown that is on the scale that, uh, that, that occurred in the United States in 2008. How does that job with your comments about recommending or suggesting that Bitcoin might be a consideration for people with their investment dollar? You know, is it appropriate for a prime minister or leader of a major political party to recommend investment vehicles, period? Because people took on debt as they saw fit. Well, you know, it's eighty-six out for every dollar coming in for the average Canadian household. So it's the same to me if you say, buy IBM or buy Coca-Cola. You know, should political leaders even be involved in that period? Because it's not really their place. What do you think? No, but they. what I said was that people should be free to make that decision if they want. People are free to make the own, their own risk-reward assessment. Some people will buy new digital assets. Some people will buy gold. Some people will buy bonds. Some will buy stocks. Uh, and uh, the success or failure of those investments depends on what the market does thereafter. Uh, my proposal, though, is the government needs to protect the purchasing power of our money, because that's something over which we have no choice. We all have to deal in the Canadian dollar. And under Justin Trudeau, the Canadian dollar has lost more purchasing power than any under any prime minister in the last 40 years. In fact, under any prime minister since his father uh, destroyed the purchasing power of the dollar uh, with his relentless money printing deficit. So we have to do is cap spending, cut waste, balance the budget so that we can bring down inflation and interest rates and protect the purchasing power of the money we all knew, use, which is the loony. My purchasing power is way down, obviously so. I'd like to get to another couple, and this is be provincially specific issues. You know, we've got a growing concern with Muskrat Falls, for instance, and you refer to nation-building projects and getting people off coal-fired generation, which is still dominant in Nova Scotia. I don't know if you have any thoughts on further protections afforded to that particular project, because if it's been deemed uh, a national uh, a national project, and we're going to to offer distinct aid to the province of Nova Scotia, does your government have any consideration to lower or lessen the burden on me, the ratepayer here, regarding Muskrat Falls? Uh, look, I, it's unfortunate the project was uh, thoroughly mismanaged. I think these massive state-driven projects are always very risky, and uh, that's why I think they should be driven by the private sector in the future. Uh, the federal government's role is to protect the environment and provide building permits but there's no reason why large-scale energy projects cannot be built by the private sector, as they are all the way all around the world and in much of Canada. You know, the uh, you know we have, for example, prior to Justin Trudeau, we used to allow the private sector to build pipelines, dig mines, and open factories, and they did, uh, and it was affordable. And if they went over budget, they paid the price for it, not the taxpayer. The problem when you have government running these projects of any kind, whether it's the Trans Mountain Pipeline in Western Canada or Churchill Falls is that because it's other people's money, the industrial players are not so worried about cost overruns. And I believe in privatizing the risk so that the 
corporations pay the price when they fail to deliver on time and on budget. Yeah, and on that one, I mean, adding profit to an already skyrocketing cost of electricity, regardless of what we're talking about, tax implications or simply return on spend at Muskrat Falls, of course, backstopped by the Harper Conservatives and the Trudeau Liberals with federal loan guarantees. Uh, get through another couple of quick ones. Provincially, the fishery is still an important part of this province. It's an over a billion dollar industry. We struggle with it being used as a diplomatic tool and the percentage that we get to fish and land here in this province versus other countries. Then there's all sorts of things regarding CETA and relationships with the EU and what have you. Do you have any specific plans, whether it be to enshrine in legislation, uh, adjacency being the guiding principle, or something that can see growth for the fishery in this province? Any thoughts? Any details? Yeah, we, we need science-based uh, decisions. Um, you know, I think uh, the, the government of, of today seems to be very hostile to, to removing any seafood from our oceans. And uh, our, our view and the view of our fisheries critic, uh, who Cliff Small, who's actually a Newfoundlander, as you know, um, is that we need a scientific review to uh, consider whether or not we can increase the quota and allow uh, more uh, harvesting of fish uh, from the East Coast. We also need uh, a plan to promote the um, export of seal products so we can bring down the excessive seal population, which is, uh, frankly, massacring the fishery right now. Um, And I'm a very strong supporter of uh, of the, the seal industry, and I think we do need to reduce the seal population so that we can bring back the fishery. Yeah, we don't even take the quota seals because there's nowhere to sell it. Uh, and I, my, I guess point, my... we should be promoting sales and we should be aggressively uh, countering disinformation about the, the seal hunt, uh, both in Europe and the United States, so that we can create markets for these incredible products that can come from it. International diplomacy, international incidents. We know about foreign interference into the 2019-21 elections and beyond. Because let's be real, it's not just China and it's not just two elections. And then, of course, it's the allegations or the accusation by the Prime Minister that agents of the Indian government were responsible for the assassination of an Indian Sikh leader in the province of British Columbia. You say you need to see more evidence whether or not you can approve or give any validity, validity to the Prime Minister's comments. That being said, if you want to see the evidence regarding foreign interference and this allegation, why not simply get the required level of security clearance so that you can get it? Or is the intent, campaign material and campaign fodder is more important than the protection of our elections and to assert whether or not the Indian government is involved in that assassination? Why not get the security clearance? So the people who have had these briefings, which include the NDP Premier of British Columbia, the former Green Party or the former Green Party leader uh, Elizabeth May have said that they, they took the briefings and there was nothing that they couldn't have found uh, on the internet. Uh, what effectively the, the government does when they bring you into these briefings is they swear you to secrecy so that you are very much limited in what you can say in public debate thereafter, even on things that you might otherwise have been able to get on the internet. Uh, so I'm not going to put myself in that kind of legal position where I'm limited in how much I can say in debate because the government gives me a briefing of information I could have got just by looking online. But but aren't you um, just saying that you're willing to debate on hypotheticals, things that may or may not be real, versus get whatever ceases information is at hand so that you can be in the know, so the Canadians know that parties on both sides of the aisle have seen information that gives validity or some merit to any allegation made by the Prime Minister or anybody else. But the briefings that they're offering don't give any validity. They, according to, again... 
The NDP Premier of New, uh, British Columbia asked for a briefing from CSIS after he was informed of the allegations against India that an assassination had happened in his province. He said he came out of the briefing saying he got nothing. That's so because he do doesn't have that required the security clearance. That it. has been offered. Not to him, yeah, but, but to but you. He, so, so, but, but Elizabeth May did get the clearance, and she said she came away disappointed as well. So the reality is that the uh, what I'm saying to the Prime Minister is that, one, we need to be able to protect Canadians on Canadian soil. It is, un, it is unacceptable for any foreign regime to carry out an assassination on Canadian soil. Two, we need to know why the RCMP is taking so long to lay charges, because if the Prime Minister knows who's behind the killing, surely he and the government must know who did the killing. And if that's the case, we would like to see some arrests so that the, the, the people who pulled the trigger are actually charged and jailed. And three, uh, we need to have uh, we need to get on with this public inquiry so that we can look into the interference of all foreign regimes in Canadian politics and on Canadian soil. And I'm glad to know all major parties approve of the term of reference and the appointment of Marie Zoche Hulk from, uh, of course, a Quebec justice. There's so much more I'd like to get to, but unfortunately we don't have time. We'll have you back in the near future to uh, broaden the scope of the conversation. Thank you for this. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. As Pierre Poliev, he's the member for Carleton and the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Jordan Blackwood is calling from the town of Wabana. Wabana, you're a corker. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Just very quickly, with, you know, I always put it out there to the listening public. If there's someone coming up, like Mr. Poliev, for instance, and you have thoughts that you'd like to hear me address with him or specific questions, of course, the emails come in fast and furious. I couldn't even see them all, certainly during the conversation we had. And, of course, he'll be back. So things we didn't get to that you think are of importance, and there's many of them because there's no end of the number of issues that we can discuss with political leaders, especially those that would like to be the prime minister. So I'll add what we didn't get to today to the list for the next time we speak to Mr. Poliev. Okay, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jordan Blackwood. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? That's kind. How are you doing? Not bad. Patty, there's a lot of um, a lot of positivity and a lot of new energy, I guess, in Wabana. It's probably why I'm calling here today. Um, you know, we've been uh, we've been in the news in the past, not for not so nice things in the past, um, but you know, um, things are changing, and we're moving forward as a small community, just 20 minutes away, uh, boat right away from the capital city. So, uh, I just want to talk about some of the major investments we are we're having in Wabana. Sure. Uh, for 22 years, we've had um, a boil order water advisory uh, in our community. Our water is contaminated with with iron, manganese, and arsenic. Um, so we're hopeful that in the next six weeks, after 22 years, 15% of our residents will finally have the boil order lifted. And this is huge for us. Um, you know, the community is really excited and hopeful within a three-year plan, the entire community will have that boil order lifted. So what did it take to arrive at the end of the boil order? It was definitely, a, you know... Um, a lot of consulting, a lot of studies done. Um, this we got, a, we got, a, we know we we got some federal and provincial support. Um, we were granted our first approval of our phase one project in 2017, um, and that project is almost near completion now. We've we've hit a couple of uh, bumps in the road due to COVID and supply chain issues and stuff, but uh, we're very hopeful that um, it's, we'll have it operational by the end of November. And so this was simply uh, water filtration, water treatment upgrade infrastructure. Absolutely, yeah. So we've uh, we drilled two new wells, um, and we designed and built and constructed, sorry, a uh, a new water treatment building facility. 
Terrific. Well, that'd be good news. Uh, you know, here we are, modern-day Canada, and there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 boil order advisories in place in this province, some of which have been in place for decades, similar to yours. Absolutely, yeah. Amazing. I mean, that's not the, that's not the only thing positive we have on, uh, in Morbana. Um, you know, we just acquired a property and, and, a, and a house for, uh, from Newfoundland Housing um, for the acquisition of a doctor, a family physician. Um, you know, when we, when we were at the negotiating table there two or three years ago, a major deterrent for a doctor wanting to reside and practice on Belle Island was uh, the housing crisis. And, you know, the housing availability and what we did have was in poor disrepair. So, um, you know, we have been working with Newfoundland Housing over the last 12 months and uh, we got the approval there a couple of weeks ago that we had been successful in uh, the acquisition of this property for a nominal fee. Um, so that has brought some light to uh, and given people some hope on Bell Island, especially with all the human resources challenges uh, related to staffing um, in a lot of these rural community ERs. We live on an island where, you know, if your ER isn't open, you have to, you can't just go drive somewhere else to the nearest one. You have to get on a ferry. And if that ferry is not, not running, where do you go? So what was the nominal fee? And correct me if I missed it, but what, what was the hope for the purchase of this home? I'm sorry? So the purchase of this home was uh, in hopes of attracting a family physician. Okay. Uh, you know, the, ha- the housing uh, was a big deterrent, uh, to my knowledge, in the, in the last time there was negotiation. Um, and, you know, not that there was any housing available. What was was in really poor disrepair. Um, I mean, it's not just a housing crisis uh, in Wabana for a uh, family physician, but for a lot of uh, residents as well. Fair enough, because, I mean, we've seen other jurisdictions do exactly that, try to offer a very cheap lot or inexpensive housing, because it would be one of the concerns that people would have, doctors or otherwise, to come as a professional to one smaller community or another. So that's probably very wise. And how does that look? Like, do you work with uh, Dr. Megan Hayes, who's the Deputy Minister for Recruitment and Retention of Healthcare Professionals, or what's next steps to make sure that people know that you have this offering? Um, to, to my knowledge, our deputy mayor um, is in contact with uh, both our MHA and other members of the Department of Health, um, and they're working closely and trying to, um, you know, have everything in line so that you know when we get this um, this house in good repair, there may be an opportunity waiting for us. Terrific, because you know we all have to see now. There is a difference between municipalities offering big cash incentives and whatnot, because just like the interprovincial bidding wars that we're seeing, that's not going to be very helpful either. But People want to do what they got to do for their own municipality for access to health care. So, bravo. Anything else good news going on on Wabana? Well, uh, Patty, we just uh, found out a little bit a month ago that the town, um, you know, we've we received some bailout specs, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago for, um, in, in our, from financial aspect. And we just had our, our highest recorded operating surplus in the town of Wabana history of $400,000, well, 398 to be exact. Uh, so nearly $400,000 on a $2.5 million budget in probably one of the most challenging years, uh, a 40-year 40, 40 high inflation. And, you know, we've uh, we definitely tightened the ropes. Uh, we're investing in our people. We're, we're purchasing equipment. We're, do, we're you know, we minimized our workforce. Uh, we have some of the most, you know, experienced heavy equipment operators, water techs, administrative staff. And I think, you know, the town of Wabana has always been, um, you know, in, in the media for some negativity, even infighting from a municipal, I guess, perspective. But, you know, we're really building and strengthening those relationships and staff to council and residents. You know, we have so many people now involved in committees, and I'm talking about members of the public that are stepping up, buying into our new energy, becoming involved, and in working together and helping us move uh, Wabana forward. I appreciate that. And, of course, I've got some connection with Wabana, with Steve Neary in particular, and the, the memorial that 
that's erected, I think, is in the parking lot of the Lions Club, if I remember correctly. Um, so yeah. it's good to have you on, Jordan. And I love this one, and it's on that sign, if I remember once again correctly. It's Wabana, you're a corker. <laughs> Thanks, Eddie. Love that one. See you, Jordan. See you. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going. Line number two, Eugene, you're on the air. Yes, good day, sir. How are you today? Grand. How about you? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Uh, just a couple of quick, quick uh, couple of comments that I'd like to dish uh, out. I know your time is short. No, go ahead. Um, basically, um, the health care system is a big part of my life. Uh, to see the closures of ER op, uh, operating rooms and stuff like that being closed because of lack of personnel speaks highly of the government. Uh, I realize the government only has so much money to go around, but I'm sure they can allocate it better than what they're doing. So that's my first um, comment. Um, my second one is the Health Science Center. I've been hearing a lot lately about the health care system and how it's not working. And for the most part, it's not working in the rural communities. But uh, in St. Anthony and Cornerbrook and stuff like that, but you come to the Health Science Center and you get nothing but the best treatment. I was on 5A a couple of years ago and I had a stroke in the eye, Bell palsy, <laughs> um, fluid overload with 150 pounds of fluid a GI bleed, liver failure, kidney failure, lung failure, and heart failure, congestive heart failure. I was in the hospital for three and a half months. Doctors was getting ready for me for palliative care, but true to nurses and true to prayers of people to God that I made it, and I made it because of the professionals at the health science as well. I mean, you don't get enough credit, and first thing you say, well, this one only working eight or ten hours. Yeah, but what's behind the scenes? You know, there's many doctors and many nurses in our healthcare system who is burnt out, there's no doubt about that. But uh, if the money would be used more efficiently instead of going over to different parts of the world and trying to recruit people, I mean, we got a Memorial University here that's got doctors in there, and it's so hard for them to get recruited because there's so much red tape. So if the government wanted to cut back on the red tape and look at themselves in the mirror and realize that they're part of the problem, then maybe we will be in such a state. 
Yeah, one key point you make there, Eugene, is not necessarily about how much we spend, but how we spend it. You know, right. because I think government mismanagement and government waste is not only in healthcare, it's right across the entirety of every single portfolio. If we did a better job with control, because it's easy enough to spend other people's money, right? So if That's we right. did a real keen job on a more focused job on how we spend and being thrifty when required, then we'd probably have more money for some of the gaps that exist in society, healthcare and otherwise. So you're, right. you're not wrong there. Uh, would you like to say anything else this morning, Eugene? Uh, no, my buddy. Um, like I said, a big bouquet going into the healthcare system, and you keep up the great job that you're doing because if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't know half what was going on. I appreciate the kind words. Hope you have a nice weekend, Eugene. You too, now. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, I see Ben Murphy walking into the booth. Uh, ben, I don't know if you saw this one. The Growlers have signed Jordan Eskett for next season. How about that? Of course, Eskett a standout on the senior hockey trail and now going to be playing some pro in the ECHL with the Newfoundland Growlers. Way to go, Jordy. All right, let's take our final break in the morning. I think what we're going to do, I don't know how long this piece is, but... I've been trying to wrap my mind around the int- the intricacies of the issue regarding the formal apology to residential school survivors coming from the Premier today, which is scheduled to happen at 1 o'clock. It's being offered to members of the Nunatuakavut Community Council, not the government of Nunatuakavut. There is a back and forth there about timing and who should be acknowledged first. It's really actually quite harsh what's going on here so linda swain who dug into it did a really good piece that ben murphy ran on the voc morning show this morning knowing the fact that we're leading into the national day for truth and reconciliation maybe to break down what's happening in our own province before that day might be helpful let's take our final break of the morning and the week don't go away and welcome back to the program just a programming update there is no show on monday uh so that's because we're part of the national corporate uh, stat holiday scheme and so that's a stat holiday for us so we will just uh, not have an open line but of course we will return on tuesday morning now as i said going into that last break the issues surrounding the apology in labrador today which is going to take place in cartwright comes with many different layers the barbs being thrown back and forth are a real standout part of the story people often ask me what's the need for apologies to begin with you know apologizing for things our forefathers were responsible for but i suppose when you think about anything spats with your buddy spats with your wife spats with your co-workers the first step towards, you know, smoothing things over or to making things better or more importantly in this vein, you know, a pathway towards some reconciliation, it all starts with an apology. And remember, when the Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Stephen Harper made an apology uh, to residential school survivors some years back, it did not include this province because the establishment of the residential schools in this province took place prior to 1949. They were not operated by the federal government. So then Prime Minister Harper decided that he was not going to include uh, residential school survivors from this province in his in that or his apology which is sort of a strange hair to split because the facts are the same across the board children were taken from their homes to try to bring an end to their indigenous ancestry and their indigenous traditions and cultures and language and the rest so it was a strange way to handle that but that's what the case was now apparently between Johannes Lamp the government of the Nazi vote and former Premier Ball they were working towards a path and the timing for said apology to be offered before it was able to take place, of course, uh, Premier Ball stepped down. And so here we are. Now, whether or not the timing is right, it's a staffing issue, 
I'll admit freely, I don't know because I don't necessarily know enough about it. But thankfully, Linda Swain, who's much sharper than I am, she dug into it and looked at all the different angles and all the different players, whether it be Todd Russell uh, in Nunatukovic, Nunatukovic and or Joannis Lamp in the government of the Nazi vote. So they've got very distinct and very sharply toned things to say about the timing and the issue today. Final check-in on the Twitter box before we play Linda's piece and we say goodbye. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. You can follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. And uh, is it time for me to do it, Greg? And uh, another 10 seconds? And of course, we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Tuesday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Greg Smith, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Tuesday. Bye-bye.